So I'm just confessional. My, my iPad was dead this morning. I forgot to plug it in, and it just feels weird to not be up here without an iPad. And somebody said, well, maybe that'll help you preach better. I really didn't know how to take that. I want you to listen to uh, American poet M- Emily Dickinson's work entitled Hope is a Thing with Feathers. It goes like this. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash this little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea and never in extremity It asked a crumb from me. Dr. Oliver Turrell summarized the poem this way. He said, in summary then, as with many of her poems, Emily Dickinson takes an abstract feeling or idea, in this case hope, and likens it to something physical, tangible, and visible. Here, a singing bird. Hope for Dickinson sings its wordless tune and never stops singing it. Nothing can phase it. Yet us in this room today, we know that hope is more than an abstract feeling. Something more than a mere idea, but it is our focus, our object for that which we hope. No matter what the gale, no matter the storm, no matter the chillest land or the strangest sea, we have hope. We have living hope. And that hope is named Jesus. And unfortunately, the last two lines of that poem say that hope never asks for a chrome, but our hope does ask for something. It's called faith. In fact, First Peter, or Peter writes in First Peter, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Say living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If our greatest enemy is death, Jesus beat it, right? And today as we come to a conclusion in this book, Malachi, I want to invite you to turn to Malachi 4. And Tony Evans summarizes this in in a much better way than I can. So if it's all right, I'm just going to read his summary. These last six verses, he said, the concluding verses of Malachi... Remind us of the sovereignty of God over his creation. Sovereignty is a theological term that simply means that God rules, controls, and governs all things. There is absolutely nothing that happens anywhere, anytime, anyhow that God doesn't either cause or allow. He's not only God of the big stuff, but also of the tiny details as well. In fact, There is not a single hair that falls from your head which he is not intimately aware. As we've studied this book, each oracle was a rhetorical question of how back to God. And it's taught us a couple of things. It's taught us to respond to God's covenant love. Jesus Christ on the cross expressed the love of God by dying for your sins and mine. And inviting us to believe and put our trust in Him and repent of our sin. And we must respond to that. It taught us to honor God in everything we bring to sacrifice. To bring Him our best. To be faithful to God in every decision we make and the way we treat our relationships, specifically marriage. It's taught us to hope in God like never before that His justice is forthcoming. Taught us to obey God in everything and to give Him our faith and give out of faith. And last week we learned to fear God and that in fearing God it drives us to serve Him. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we read these last six verses. And as we read them, I I want to invite you to notice words and phrases of hope and promise. It says in verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil 
doers will be like chaff. And that day is coming, and it is going to set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Utter destruction. But for you who fear my name, the ones we talked about last week that wrote this book of remembrance, he said, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. So the application today is when you leave today, I want to see everyone skip. Rick's over there laughing. He's got a new hip. You should be able to skip now, brother. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under, your, under the soles of your feet on the day for which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. That's, that's a very... Very somber moment, isn't it? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. And when he says curse, he ain't just talking about a bad storm. He's talking about bad stuff. Let's pray. Father, as we read this today, I pray that you stir in our hearts this idea of hope, even in the midst of destruction. God, I pray that as, as I challenge these hearers today to live in anticipation of what you're going to do, that that would produce a hope-filled living that will drive us to do whatever you would call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I go back through this passage, I want to go verse at a time, all six verses. Because here's what I believe. I believe that as as the readers were challenging God with how have we done this or that, now God is challenging you and me on how we're going to live in response. How do we live in response knowing God's covenant love? How do we live in response in the fear of the Lord? How do we live in response knowing that he's forthcoming? So I want to give you six points and challenging you at the end of this to change the way you live. First point says this, trust God's judgment. Trust God's judgment. He said in the text, for behold, the day is coming. Not days, but day. It's coming. It's it's going to happen. Burning like a furnace. And all of the arrogant, which means presumptuous and proud. We saw that exemplified in in the way that they responded back to God. God, you're letting the the evildoers prosper. We're bringing blind lambs. Why would you call us out on that? The evildoer. What's the opposite of an evildoer? Well, a good doer. He's asking them to obey him. But he says, for them they will be like chaff, that residue that comes off the wheat that's highly flammable. All it takes is a little spark to set it on fire. But when it burns, it burns completely. So he ends that verse by saying, so that it will leave them with neither a root nor a branch. In other words, the legacy of the arrogant and the evildoer will come to a complete end. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking looking for and hastening the coming of Of the day of the Lord. Who can stand in that kind of judgment? See guys, we can trust today. Whether we embrace it or not is on you. But there's coming a day when justice will be served. There's coming a day of judgment. In fact, if you read scripture, you read about the Bema Seat of Christ. Which is the place where we will be judged as believers And rewarded according to our works. But then there is the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation. 
where all of the dead will be raised. Which side of that judgment seat do you want to sit? Maybe I could say it this way. Do you want to be a witness of the wrath of God or do you want to be a recipient of the wrath of God? Those are very hard things for us to chew on, but but I'm telling you with, with all the sincerity in my heart, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I've got tomorrow, I can wait till then, I can get my life right with the Lord whenever I want to, I'm telling you that's a lie. You don't have tomorrow promised. Judgment day is coming and we will stand before the Lord and my question to you is, are you going to be on the side of judgment to receive reward or are you going to be on the side of judgment to receive the wrath of God? Because when you think about the cross and the horrible things that was done to Jesus Christ, that was the wrath of God poured out on Him for your sins and mine. And He has invited you to put your faith and trust in Christ to repent of your sin, which is what drove Him to the cross. Why would you stay in sin and continue to live there when that's exactly what killed Christ in the first place? It's no different than those who were bringing blind lambs to the altar. They were disrespecting the place of God. They were disrespecting the sovereignty of God. They were disrespecting the gift of God. And so today, if we're going to live, if we want to know how I can live in response to the book of Malachi, I need to trust that God's judgment is coming, and if I don't know Christ, don't walk out of this room today. Repent and believe. If you've strayed away from God and sin has entangled you, don't leave this place today until you get right with the Lord. That is the major thrust of what this book is calling us to remember, is that the day is coming. And because we know that day is coming, for us that know Christ, point number two, I can know joy. I can know joy in his judgment. Verse 2 said, But for you who fear my name, those who feared his name serve him, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Laura's dad has goats that stay in his back pasture and from time to time, we'll go and we'll watch those goats. And if you've never seen, a, a, when I say a kid, I mean a baby goat, skipping around and just frolicking. It's, there's just, it's like nothing is weighing on that goat at all. Some of you remember as a kid, or maybe you've watched your kids or your grandkids, when they're just in total oblivious joy, skipping around, whistling. Guys, I'm telling you that when, when you know Christ, you have what is necessary to live a hope-filled life, knowing that you will not incur, incur the wrath of God when judgment day comes. In fact, you see here where he says the sun will rise and bring healing. I mean, these people needed some healing. They were frustrated, they were hurt, they were, they were taxed, and they were ready for something new. And he said he'd bring healing in his wings. That, that, uh, in his wings. That, that word is marpe. In, we see it in Jeremiah 36, 33, 6. Behold, I will bring to it Jerusalem health and healing. And I will heal them. And I will reveal to them an abundance. An abundance of peace and truth. The salve that we need for our healing. Adrian Rogers said this. Since Jesus is the S-O-N of God, he is also the S-U-N of righteousness. He said, let me tell you something about the sunrise. Check this out. The sunrise never comes ahead of time, and it's never late. Some of you last Sunday were going, I lost, I lost an hour of time. No, you didn't. The sun still come up when the sun was supposed to come up, and it set when the sun was supposed to set. My perception of time was a little different, but the sun came up. And it set when it was supposed to. And so he says, you can't hurry this up and you can't stop it. The sunrise operates according to God's power and God's authority. And so it is with the second coming of Jesus. You can't stop it. One day the Lord shall come with a trumpet sound. He will pull back the shade of night and pin it with a star. And then he'll open the door of the glorious morning awaiting for us in the future. 
And so today, we sit in this joy and we praise and we celebrate. And like a new calf, we can be free to hop and skip around in that joy. You know why? Because point number three, because we can live in victory. We can live in victory. You see, a lot of us are sitting here and we think about the day of the Lord and we think about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And for years, people have said, oh, this end, they're at war again. And we get afraid. We get scared. Because we think it's unknown. But I'm telling you, God has already told you a day is coming. This should not catch us unaware. Because he's coming to judge the evildoer. He's coming to judge the arrogant. He says, you will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day for which I am preparing, says the Lord. Now listen. If you're in this room and, and that gives you some kind of weird glory, I feel sorry for you. I don't, I don't want to celebrate seeing somebody turned into ash. Do you? I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. If somebody's going to go to hell, I want them to do it stepping over my body. But what about you? Do you love Jesus and the future you're going to have with him enough that you don't want anyone in your life to have to experience what's destined for them in the wrath of God? It takes a wicked heart to celebrate the demise of anyone. In fact, Paul would write in Romans 12, 19, Never take for your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How are we supposed to treat our enemies? He said, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Because here's the thing. Do not be overcome by evil by doing evil. Because then you become evil. He said, but overcome evil with good. Jesus commanded us to pray for our enemy. Jesus said, if your enemy slaps you, turn the other cheek. Jesus said, if he tries to take your coat, give him your cloak also. But when the day of the Lord comes, you're going to be walking in a reminder of the utter destruction of what God's bringing because of sin in this world. And it paints this ugly picture of what sin has done to creation. When we get to what we call that great white throne judgment, the final act where all of the dead will stand before God, Revelation 20 verse 6 and 20 verse 14 mention this thing called the second death. And this second death is this, is this point where death and Hades, death and hell will be thrown into what's called the lake of fire. And along with them will be those whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have accepted Christ and their names are written in that book, according to Revelation 21, 8, will pass this judgment. But we have victory. Y'all missed an opportunity there. We have victory. Because what, what do we have? What do we really have victory of? What is it that Jesus beat for us? He beat Sin. Jesus died on the cross to bear his life, to incur the wrath of God for the sin that you and I have accumulated. He took our place. And why did he have to die? Because we read that the wages of sin is what? It's death. When Adam and Eve sinned, he said, Cursed is the ground, and from dust you came, and dust you'll return. But where's the victory? The victory came three days later. After they wrapped his body and put him in a tomb. And on Easter Sunday morning that tomb busted up and our Savior came back to life. And that same Jesus who was risen from the dead will raise you from the dead. If you've believed in him. That's our victory. Do you know that victory? Which side of that victory are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of victory? Will you stand victorious? Or will you be the ash? Listen to me. Will you be the ash? That the victorious walk over. You see to me. I don't want to be the one trampled. I want to be the one trampled. I want to stand victorious in that day. And so again we hear. This call to repent. To turn from our sin. And live in obedience. Point number four. Follow Jesus commands. It should be simple. But here's the thing. Your rotten sinful heart doesn't know how to obey God. And in the Old Testament, we hear of the New Covenant where he said, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you 
and cause you to obey my commands. Well, then what did Jesus command us to do? Hold on a second. I watched a reel recently by Vodibachum where he talked about how obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation. Because what you'll hear a lot of times, and even some of you sitting in here right now, you'll say to yourself, you know what? Well, I'm going to get my life cleaned up, and then I'm going to come to Jesus. You know, he wouldn't take me the way that I am, so I'm going to do a little bit better, and then I'm going to come to Jesus. Well, guys, that's a works-based mentality of salvation. Because you know what? You won't get cleaned up. It's a 100% chance you won't get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. No, the doorway is salvation. What Bodhi said is that there's only two prerequisites. Repentance and belief. Repent of your sins and believe the word of Jesus Christ. When that happens, when you are saved, then you are caused. You have a reason to obey. God fills your heart with love. And so when we read John 13, 34, and 35, where he says, A new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then he goes on in 14, 15, and he says, If you love me, that's subjunctive, that's conditional. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. So he gets our heart in order. In this victory where he saves us from our sins and transforms my life, he gives me what I need to love him. And in loving him, I obey him. We need Christ. And knowing how prevalent disobedience and arrogance and pride was in the day of the Jews of Malachi, he, we hear this same cry that we need to obey. So I ask you today, if you look at your life, how much of you life have you put under the cross? Are you like 60, 40? You know, like kind of like 60% of my life, I'm, I'm kind of reverencing God, but then there's this 40%, I just like can't touch this. You're like MC Hammer. What if your intention was to put 100% of every awakening breath you take under the Lordship of Christ? Stop being Hannah Montana and getting the best of both worlds. What would it look like for you to give it all to the Lord? To give your best, to stop bringing your blind lambs, but bring that which is spotless and perfect. But again, don't hear me saying you do that to get saved. I said you get saved, and this should be an outflow of your life. And You know why we do that? Why would we, why would we long to obey Christ? Because we know to expect his return. Look at verse number 5. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. If you don't remember, Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot. Right? He, he didn't die. He just kind of transitioned somehow. But this is the same kind of wording that we read in 3.1. 3.1 said, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. But wait a minute, are these the same events? Can I propose that they're not? They're both tied to John the Baptist, but, but I want you to hear, hear this summary. After this is spoken, that this Elijah is going to come, an angel tells John the Baptist's parents in Luke 1.17 that their son would minister in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Yet John denies Listen to this. John denies that he was Elijah in John 1, 21 through 23. He says, I'm not Elijah. But he definitely was the forerunner. Would you agree? He's the forerunner of, of Malachi 3, 1. But hear this. Jesus said that John would have been Elijah if the people of his day had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Matthew eleven forty four. So since they did not, since the Jews of his day did not accept him, John does not feel, fulfill this prophecy about Elijah coming. And we did not see the curses and the smiting happen that he said would happen. Thus this interpretation has its favor, it has in its favor Jesus' words following the transfiguration which happened after John was dead. Where he saw Elijah. Jesus said that Elijah would then come and restore all things, Matthew 17, 11. So whether the original Elijah will appear before the day of the Lord or an Elijah-type figure similar to John the Baptist will appear, 
we wait to see. I personally believe that we will see this in the future likened to the two witnesses we read about in Revelation that will be slain and raised again. But I want you to know for sure what we hear in this passage that Jesus is coming. He is coming. When will it be? According to 1 Thessalonians 5, now as to the time and the epics, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written for you, for you know yourselves full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. And we must trust in this. It's weird to trust in this. We can either stand in our lives scared to death looking every day to see if Jesus is coming back, or we can live lives of obedience to what God has called us to do. We live in expectation that the Lord will return and that us, his children, that we can stand in the midst of the woe that will come. And in the midst of sadness and loss, we can have joy because we know how our story ends. Do you live with that kind of expectation? Do you live with that kind of anticipation? Listen, every person that you experience a funeral for is an opportunity for you to remember Jesus is coming back. And the next time I see my loved one that knows Christ, they will be raised again. That's what I can take today. Even in my sadness, I can stand with joy. And the last point, because in, in light of these promises, we need to beware, beware the warnings. We need to beware of the warnings. He said, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In fact, it actually says he will turn their hearts back. Well, what, why is this an issue? The kids and their daddies weren't on the same page. Y'all see that? The dads had failed in building the faith of the next generation. And so what we see is the promise that when this Elijah comes, families will be reunited. Come on, folks. I, how many of you have experienced the brokenness of what can happen in a family? There's nothing. You may have experienced church hurt, but there's nothing hurts like family hurt. He said he would come and he would turn them around. In fact, in Luke 1, 17, you read where Gabriel tells Zechariah, John's father says this, It is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient, listen, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. That was the whole issue in the book of Malachi. They had bad attitudes. So as to make ready... A people prepared for the Lord. If they would have believed, and I kind of hold this belief, if the Jews of the day would have believed in Jesus as a nation, that would have been it. But because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, this Elijah has not come yet. But maybe the reason Jesus is waiting is because he is waiting for the chosen people of God to accept Jesus as their Messiah and be saved. Maybe instead of us, every time a bullet goes off in Israel or Gaza, we need to be praying for the salvation of the Jews. Are y'all listening? We need to be praying that the, Jew, the Jews and the Jewish nations would acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and that they would turn to Him. When, Paul, when, when, when John closes out the book of Revelation, he says this, if anyone adds... To the words of this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. But the cursing that is going to come in 4-6 doesn't compare to the bad things that any of us have ever experienced in this life. The day of wrath is going to be something that no one wants to stand. And we cannot ignore the warnings of his return. He is coming, and when he comes, he's going to judge the quick and the dead. About two weekends ago, um, one of the radio stations was playing old Christian music. Now, wait a minute. I know you're going to think, oh, how old? I'm thinking like 80s and 90s. So just, just bear with me. But when I became a Christian, I, there was some specific bands that I listened to. And one of the gentlemen that I loved to listen to was Rich Mullins. He was, I mean, that last album that he made where he was plucking that dulcimer. And it's just, I wanted, to, I wanted to buy a dulcimer so I could see if I could play one. But he wrote a song 
that was based upon the Apostles' Creed. If you know what the Apostles' Creed was, it was this, it's this statement of, of what we believe. And so in, in there, he's talking about Jesus. And he says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, now listen, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so in his song, the creed, he writes this, And I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. Did y'all catch that? It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. So on that bulletin, I want you to look at that last place where you can fill in some blanks. You see, to me, this points to the hope. It's not a singing bird that just resonates in my soul that Jesus Christ is the very focus of my hope. And living in that anticipation of his return someday gives me hope-filled life. That no matter what comes against me, my faith will stay strong in Christ because he is the object of my faith. No matter what Satan may tempt me to do, my hope is in Christ alone. That maybe I fall away, maybe I slumber, maybe I slip, but my focus is to get back on that track and pursue the hope that God has instilled in my life. That's why for the last few weeks we've talked so much about our vision and our mission. And this new mission statement encapsulates what I believe already existed here at Ebenezer, but we're leading the broken to hope in Christ. We're leading the broken to hope in Christ. And every one of of you in this room at some point in your life needed a little bit of hope. And so I want you to watch something very quickly on the screen. It's it's a bumper we've been playing, but I want you to see again these key words that, that we believe represents the core values of what defines Ebenezer and makes us who we are. So, so watch this on the screen. right now when you leave this building today and you engage in our community that at least and I say at least because you can't have part of a person four out of five people in this county do, are not connected to a church I want, y'all, I want y'all to think about that and that's probably being conservative but I can't say four and a half out of five because you can't cut a person in half so let's say at least four out of five people in this county are not in church and most likely don't know Jesus Christ. Does that bother you? It bothers me. It bothers me that, that the church in America is slowly losing its voice of hope. And I'm not going to let that happen here. I want us to be that people of hope, that place of hope that is leading the broken to hope in Christ. And so I'm, I'm going to invite some, some of our staff team to join me on stage. And uh, first I'm going to invite Shannon to come because we, we, we talk a lot. You know, we don't just sit in our offices kind of confined to our desk, but, but we're constantly talking about you and what we want God to do in your life and, do, and what we want God to do in our ministry. And in fact, I know I'm embarrassed you again, but last week was her 13th anniversary of being here at Ebenezer on staff. So. But one of the things we began to notice as, as we're chewing through our core values was that there were staff members that aligned with one of the values. And so Shannon, we got, we got to look and we're like, it just makes a lot of sense. She's our ministry operations director and she knows everyone in Stevens County. And so... <laughs> But Shannon, maybe you could share with just a little bit about how, how you see what you do and what you have done as being this lane of helping others connect. Sure. So, um, 
even as a church member, uh, before I started working here on staff, and then as I got on staff, uh, I noticed that I noticed people, um, and not like a weird way, I just noticed the connections. I noticed that, you know, hey, this family hasn't been in two weeks, or um, I noticed that uh, these people have brought a friend, or I noticed that, you know, uh, so-and-so's cousin was sick, and so that's why they weren't here, and just, I noticed that connections with people kind of stood out to me. It just naturally was something that um, I picked up on, I enjoyed, and so uh, making that connection with people and making sure our team kind of has a connection with people was just easy and something I really enjoyed, uh, but as I started kind of thinking about that and looking, I realized, too, that the connection amongst you guys was important and kind of how that, you know, follows into uh, relationships and these values. Um, we say, a lot of times you'll hear us say, whether you're a first-time guest or you've been here your whole life, welcome home. And I, I take that to heart. I know we all do. We want this to feel like home to everybody whether it's when you step, you know, in our front door, we want to make that connection and make you feel like you're home. And we want to strengthen and build the connections between you guys. So when you go out into the community, you go to your work, you go to your friends, family, wherever, and say, hey, I want to invite you to Ebenezer. We want you guys to feel like you're inviting them home. So this is your home. So when you go out, you're confident that, hey, when I bring these people in that they feel like home just as much as I do. And so, you know, those connections and relationships we build with you guys as a staff and then the relationships that you guys build with each other, and, you know, we do that through uh, events like the men's event yesterday or uh, our date nights, family events, our family worships or ladies' events. Any kind of event we do is very intentional to help bring you guys closer together, to bring this church closer together. And so uh, just with that, that helps strengthen then our connection with our community. So when you go out and you are inviting, or if we go out to, um, you know, serve it like our CLC, food to kids, uh, anything like that, if our relationship and connections here are strong, when we go out into the community with other ministries or to do ministry, we know that we've, we've built those relationships. And it is. I mean, I think all of you would agree that, that relationships matter. They do matter. They matter so much to the core of who we are. And that kind of flows into our next core value, which is to own our faith, which uh, Kevin, Kevin Hurt, now being here a little over three months, um, he, he has got to see this firsthand. And, and it was very obvious that Kevin steps in and becomes our discipleship pastor and Growing matters. And so, Kevin, how have you observed that in our congregation and, be and become connected to that as well? Yeah, so, uh, as I said in the earlier service, you know, any value that we have, anything that shape us, shapes us, should be what shapes us from God's Word. What, In other words, what matters to Him should matter to us. And I couldn't help but think as you were preaching this morning about that final goal, that final destination of really when Christ comes again. The goal will be that we've all been made like Christ, right? And, and so discipleship for me is that process that we are working and partnering with what God's heart is to make people like Jesus. In fact, I heard someone say to me one time, said, you know, when we get to heaven, all the angels are going to look at each other and say, you know, they look just like him, right? And so how I see that working is, is that as Shannon was saying, she's connecting us with these people and every week she's saying, Kevin, here's someone new at the church. Here's someone who hasn't been here. So we're connecting because we care about them, about the relationship we have with them and most importantly, their relationship that they have with the Lord and his process to make them more and more like his son. Yeah. And he's kind of hitting on this idea because like, you know, wherever you work, maybe, maybe you're a school teacher and you're a second grade teacher and here's your 20, 25 kids and they're in this room, but you know, just because a kid acts up in third grade doesn't mean that you have, that you got to stay in your lane and just take care of your 25. You might call that kid down. And it's the same way here. We don't see our lanes of responsibility as like our ownership. Like, you know, it's not that Kevin's not working in connections, but what it looks like is a rope. 
And if you take a, a rope apart, it's just strands of string, right? But when you band those strings together, it becomes something strong enough to hold more weight. And so I, that's what we kind of see. Like he just said, he comes to Shannon, and Shannon's got this connection. But then maybe Shannon's got somebody she needs to connect to a group. And so they all kind of work in tandem. And then, and then you kind of look at this, and as you saw, Caleb came and, and took his seat. He, he kind of runs that lane of pursuing God daily. He's, he's our a church administrator, but he's our worship leader. And so why don't you – I mean, you've been here a long time. I mean, I think you've been here longer than Methuselah. But um, – <laughs> Maybe you could express to, to, I mean, help the church understand. I mean, worship is core to who we are. Well, I did grow up in this church in my whole 24-year life. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, worship is part of what I do. And, you know, it's so much gets associated with this room and these instruments and these people and Josiah and Caleb and Mark and Ann and everybody that is involved in the musical side of worship. But... You know, I think everybody here knows we, we're all worshiping something every day. I mean, that's what our hearts were designed to do. And so worship being so much more than that is, is our response to what God has done and what he's doing and what he's going to do in, in, in whole, in our, in our whole life. And we do that personally, and we do that together in some ways. Um, but uh, even down to generosity, I mean, we put it right there in the bulletin every week. You guys are incredibly generous with, finan- with the financial side of things. You're incredibly generous with uh, our time and talents. And, and this, uh, I think if you polled anybody in this community, they may not know exactly everything about this church, but they know this church is a place of hope and that it is a generous place. And uh, so all of that together, um, and Kevin's actually teaching a class on this on Wednesday nights right now, that uh, worship is not a song. Uh, it's just, you know, that's one way, that's one way we, that we do, um, you know, declare God's worth. Uh, but that we do that in just how we live personally and how we live together. And uh, so it's, it's awesome to be able to, to see. And worship kind of gets woven into all of these lanes. I mean, they all do. Uh, but worship kind of gets striped across. Like under Jamie's leadership, that pastoral shepherding piece uh, gets striped all across. And I'm going to tell you, this is just a few of us. You know that. But we have an incredible staff. I mean, everybody. Fred's involved in discipleship and the worship side of things. And he's our advisor to all this. And Crosby's taking this and pouring it into students and Timothy into kids and Deborah at the, in the office uh, helping me with the finance side of things. And so, yeah, during the week I, I get to run the business end of things, and then on Sunday I'll lead worship for therapy, you know, so we can get over. No, I'm just kidding. But um, so, no, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome, and, and um, it's, it's obviously one of our – we value a lot of things, but worship is obviously uh, one of the things we value to the core. And so what you notice is, like, up here we have this, this, this awesome rope, this, this – this, this idea that we want relationship to run alongside and with discipleship growing to run alongside with worship, generosity, sacrifice, honoring, and giving. But, but you know, in our discussions, though, we, we came across something that, that kind of stuck out to us. And I, I want to go to the next slide. And I want you guys to look at this for a moment, and, and, and I want you to ponder it. Because actually, we go ahead and even put up the next slide. See, we've talked a lot about in the last couple of years, or not years, months, excuse me. It feels like I've been here for years. But we've talked a lot about, like, what's our next hire? What's our next call? Because there's always need. I'm just telling you, there's always need. And a former pastor of mine always taught us we need to stay one step ahead of growth if you expect growth to come and be sustained. But as we begin to think about that, though, we came up with all kinds of ideas. And everything we came up with was reactionary. But if we're going to be a vision-driven church, and we believe that our vision, our mission, is to lead the broken to hope in Christ, and right now we have three out of four of our core values represented, the only way we can take a bold step in 2024 to lead by vision is to fill that chair. And I believe that God is calling our church to call a missions pastor. Now, now I, I, I made sure I wrote this down because I want to make sure I hit this. Because what if God, what if God's intention is to call someone here to complete our value, core values, running these lanes, a, 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 a rope together? What, what strength would that bring? In fact, I was talking to Steve Payson this week and I said, give me a statistic. And he told me that 40% of this county 
is affected by drug use. That's two out of five people. That doesn't mean they're using them, but that means they're affected by it. And I I just want to ask you, if you have somebody in your family or somebody that's close to you that's affected by drugs or alcohol, raise your hand. I am. You see that? That's about two out of five. That's brokenness, folks. And what I heard Fred share with us, I got the numbers now, Fred. Fred shared with us in his tenure here in the 80s and 90s, they had bold mission efforts. And out of that efforts, there are 30 people that are either on the mission field, that are married to somebody who's a missionary, that's a pastor or married. 30 people out of that season of time are actively serving God in that way. What would that mean for us? What would it look like that in 2024, instead of just saying we've got a couple of trips scheduled, that we make some bold steps to have somebody that actually help equip those trips, that actually help us to look for new avenues of mission, that will be a liaison between us and North American Mission Board and the, and the IMB that can look in our community. What if, y'all ready for this one? What if we could take that building across the parking lot and turn it into a ministry center? Where we could have after school programs and, and activities that will help equip people to get jobs. In our county, there are jobs. But the labor force is not skilled to work. What if we could tap into that in some way? What if we could invite other groups like Food to Kids and some of those to park their camper in our building out there and it becomes a center of hope for Tacoma? What if? What if we could have a warehouse where, where when, when something happens... Our disaster relief could go in the warehouse and get their stuff, and it'd be ready to go. What if on a weekly basis we're seeing teams go out of that place to go meet needs? You see that there's a, there's a seat down there that's empty, and all of us are, are involved in missions. I can tell you from a staff perspective, we've all done this. We've spun the plate and then gone back over here, and then we came back and tried to keep that, spit, that place. What if, what if that's that person's lane? What if that is what God has purposed in their hearts to do? And what could it do to our church? If 30 people in the 80s and 90s were so impacted by the missions program, what if it's ready to impact you? What if that is the thing that would bring you to the next step where you need to go to be all that you can be for God? What if? And that's that's what we want you to join with us to pray about. Because here's the truth. Not only do we feel like this is our next step, we already have a person in mind. That's how God works. And that person has not said no. Yet. We're not going to allow him. We're going to take duct tape and we're going to stick it on his face. And But I'm telling you guys, I mean, I've been telling you for weeks, I just can't wait. This is kind of like the crescendo of what we were building up to. And as we get through Thanksgiving and we get back to Thanksgiving and we present our, what we feel like is our budget for next year as we go into that theme of move. That's what we feel like God's calling us to do is move, not be stagnant, but to get out and to go. It's going to take some pieces for us to get there. And so what I want to ask you to do right now is I want everybody to stand. And uh, Kevin's going to put that empty stool out here on the, on the face of our stage. Church, I want you to come. Come to the front of this church. Everybody come. Just come right now. Don't wait. Just come. Because here's what I know. Because some of you are out there going, man, I don't know about this. Well, you know what? I don't have all the pieces together. Here's what I know. When the Israelites entered into the promised land, all Joshua said is, I don't know what's going to happen when we get there. I just know we need to go across this river. And that's what I'm putting in front of you right now. I don't want the cart before the horse. And we we want the man that God wants to be here. But if it's his will and he has moved us into this mission and he's moved us in our core values then this is the thing that will make a big impact for the Lord. Not for us, not for Ebenezer, but for the kingdom of God. So I want to invite you to stretch your hands toward this stool. Kevin is going to pray over this stool. We want to invite you to pray with us that God will lead us, direct us, and give us what we need. Kevin? Churches, you've heard those core values shaped by the Word of God. The things that matter to God. Even as you heard in that song earlier, no, I did not make it. It is making me. We didn't come up with these ideas. These are God's word driving our vision and our values. 
And so as we think about this man coming and filling this spot here, just envision reaching across the street, down the road, or around the world. And then as we make that missions connection and we go and we take that gospel and they come back and they have a place of connection, a place of discipleship, learning how to worship God in everyday life and becoming more and more like Jesus so that in that day, the Father will be able to say, They're made like my son. Oh, let us pray. Let us believe. Let us trust that God is going to guide and going to provide. Let's do that, church. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that your church, your people, the ones you have called and redeemed and rescued and brought into your kingdom was your design and your purpose. And you all all of this intend to make your people to look like your son, to be like your son. And Lord Jesus, as we pray for this man, we, we thank you that just like Jeremiah, that you had formed and fashioned him and called him even from his mother's womb. And we thank you, Lord, that everything in his life, every experience he has had, has been used by you to shape and mold and fashion him to just fit the work of ministry that you've called him to. And we are so excited and cannot wait to unfold how that plan works together in this structure that you've been putting together, filling the vision and the purpose for which you have called us as a church here at Ebenezer. Oh, Lord, may you just do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. And may we be so humbled and amazed that this truly was your work to fulfill the vision and purpose that you have called us to. We commit this man to you. Confirm in him, assure him that you, Lord, are guiding and you are leading and that you have called him to the work set before us. We pray all this today and thank you as his people. And all of us said, amen. Amen. You can take your seat. And as you do, let me just say, if you are a first-time guest with us today, on your way out, please stop by the uh, visitor's desk there. We have a gift for you. We'd love to connect with you. It's part of how we process getting to involved in your life and serving you. And if you're a veteran, as you today were acknowledged, we want you to stop. We have students out there waiting to hand you a gift, just a small token to say thank you for serving us as you have. God bless you. You're welcome to go. Stay, fellowship, deepen those relationships with each other, and glorify our great God as you go this day.